high above 107 Columbia Street in the heart of the Nipty Radio Recording Studios. Welcome to this week's edition of the Nipty Practice Tip. The weather is beautiful, but it's also cold here in Albany. This week we're going to be discussing conduct by a defendant in an attempt to influence a witness that can result in your ability to introduce previous statements and testimony of your witness at trial on the direct case which does not violate the defendant's right of confrontation. So let's begin. When the people establish that the defendant is responsible for a witness being unavailable to testify at trial, the defendant's right of confrontation is waived and the people may present previous testimony or statements of that witness as direct evidence of the defendant's guilt. These previous statements are not required to have been made under oath nor to have been made in a procedure where the defense had the opportunity to cross-examine the witness. In the context of this issue, the concept of available is not limited to being physically available. Whether the defendant has intimidated the witness with threats or acts of violence, or conjoled the witness to bring about this absence or failure to testify, a conclusion by the court that either method was used is the basis for a finding that the defendant has waived the right of confrontation. As was held in the case of People v. White, a witness who is so fearful that he or she will not testify or will testify falsely is just as unavailable as a witness who is dead or cannot be found. In view of a defendant's proven forfeiture of his right of confrontation, court properly permitted the people to introduce the victim's grand jury testimony as evidence-in-chief to establish the defendant's guilt, and not merely as impeachment material. To deem a testifying but recanting witness available for confrontation clause purposes, as defendant suggests, would provide witness tamperers with an incentive to induce witnesses to recant rather than to refrain from testifying at all. In the case of People v. Jernigan, the defendant used his prior relationship with the victim of the assault to convince her not to testify against him and send him to jail. The court wrote, There was extensive direct and circumstantial evidence of defendant's wrongdoing, including phone messages that the defendant left on the victim's answering machine in which he implored her not to testify against him, and evidence that he made an additional 59 calls to her whose content could not be determined. Contrary to defendant's argument, the people were not required to prove that he made any threats. Instead, the evidence fully supported the conclusion that defendant wrongfully made use of his relationship with the victim in order to pressure her to violate her duty to testify. The use of this hearsay testimony as direct evidence is not based on the usual foundation for an exception to the rule against hearsay which focuses on the reliability of the proffered statement. Rather, it is based on public policy to reduce or eliminate any motive that may exist for a defendant to tamper with a witness. See the case from the Court of Appeals of People v. Garachi. To secure the court's permission to introduce this evidence, the people are first required to make an offer of proof to the court which demonstrates the distinct possibility the defendant has engaged in such witness tampering. The trial court will then order a hearing to establish if there is enough evidence to justify the introduction of the witness's prior statement. This hearing was known for time as a Mastrangelo hearing. 
or in some locations, a Helen Brand hearing, named after the Second Department case, which first laid out the procedures to be followed when the people allege specific facts which determine a distinct possibility that the defendant is responsible for the absence of the witness. In a never-ending attempt to confuse, such a hearing is now commonly referred to as a Soroy hearing, named after the defendant in the Holtzman v. Hellenbrand decision. There is no case captioned People v. Soroy, so don't waste time looking for it. The burden of proof on the people in the Soroy hearing is to establish by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant is responsible for the unavailability of the witness. See the case of People v. Garachi. This burden may be met with the use of circumstantial evidence. When this type of evidence is used, the burden of proof does not change. The court wrote, The use of this enhanced evidentiary standard does not impair the utility of the circumstantial evidence, in whole or in part, that a witness's unavailability was procured by the defendant. Circumstantial evidence is not a disfavored form of proof and, in fact, may be stronger than direct evidence when it depends upon undisputed evidentiary facts about which human observers are less likely to err or distort. Furthermore, given the inherently surreptitious nature of witness tampering, the proponent of grand jury testimony or other hearsay evidence will often have nothing more to rely on than the circumstantial proof. In light of the important policy considerations at stake, it would be unrealistic and unnecessarily rigid to adopt a formula that would make it impossible to establish the necessary foundation in so many cases. Hearsay testimony is permitted to be used at the hearing. In the Garachi case, while the witness denied any pressure or threats having been made, the people presented evidence that the witness had, in fact, previously spoken to the police about threats as well as being given money to have him change his grand jury testimony. Despite his denials at the hearing, the trial court correctly found that, quote, pressures had been brought to bear, making him unwilling to testify, and that the people had satisfactorily established defendant's responsibility for those circumstances. Once the court determines the people have met their burden, it must determine the testimony offered is sufficiently reliable so as not to offend due process. As noted, statements are not required to have been taken under oath nor during any form of courtroom proceeding. In the Cotter decision, the witnesses' statements had been given to police officers investigating the case, and the court wrote, Although Garachi itself involved grand jury testimony, the court did not limit its reach to those particular out-of-court statements and indeed made it clear that it applied to hearsay evidence such as the grand jury testimony. Nor would the policy objectives underlying Garachi be served by foreclosing admissibility of other reliable evidence. It is not required that the defendant be shown to be the person who directly influenced or contacted the witness. It is often the case that the defendant is incarcerated when the tampering takes place in a fashion that would preclude the defendant from being the actor. Therefore, the people are permitted to demonstrate that the defendant was responsible for or acquiesced in the conduct. Court wrote in People v. Brown, The evidence presented at the Soroy hearing and the inference that logically flowed therefrom supported the court's determination by clear and convincing evidence that an eyewitness had been threatened with death if she testified and that the defendant was either responsible for or acquiesced in the intimidation. 
As a result of this intimidation, the eyewitness testified at trial but claimed total ignorance of the crime. Accordingly, the court properly found that the defendant had forfeited his right of confrontation with respect to the eyewitness's grand jury testimony and properly allowed the prosecution to introduce that testimony as part of its direct case. Be sure to see the comprehensive memo on this area in the PE within the Dreyer memos. Our thanks as always to our crack producer and man on vacation, Jonathan Marconi Crispino. Be well and stay ready, my friends. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy, all my